The Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance. Your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene. The voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning. You're listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins, and I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I'd like to welcome Evelyn Araluen uh, on the program today, who is the author of Drop Bear. Good morning, Evelyn. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's a beautiful book, Drop Bear, um, and congratulations. This is your first book of poetry, as I understand it. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, yeah, this is my first um, my first solo collection. Yep. Great. So, on the inside, it tells me that you're a poet, researcher, and co-editor of the Overland Literary Journal. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've been working there for a little while now. And how's it been going in lockdown? Pretty strange. Um, very difficult time to um, very difficult time to try to um, you know learn a new job and also to put your own spin on things. Um, and we've just found that as much as we love the work and we're really um, incredibly blessed to be working with an amazing team. Um, you know, life is difficult for everyone in a pandemic, so we're just trying to get. A, you know, get our publication schedule as on track as possible and share some of the really amazing writing that we've got going on in this country with as many people as possible. Yes, and it is a wonderful uh, literary world we have in Australia. There's a huge number of brilliant writers uh, around. Um, and I notice that uh, you're born and raised on in Darik country and a descendant of the Bundjalung Nation. Yeah, so being away from home is a bit of a strange um, experience for myself as well. I was, you know, I've always grown up in Durham community and, um, you know, that's where my family's been for quite a while since um, my great-grandfather came down from Bundjalung. So it's, you know, it's a bit sad to be living and working somewhere so far from home, but the Kulin Nation's are you know beautiful and I'm very lucky to have been uh, to have been able to be safe here uh, as a guest on this country throughout the pandemic. There's a quite a strong theme of family in your book, actually. Um, quite a few uh, memories of home and reflections on um, on on your mother and your parents and growing up and those kinds of things. That's been a good source of inspiration for you? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm very lucky that my family, um, you know, my family is as loving and supportive as they are and we're really very tightly knit. Um, you know, I've, I'm one of six siblings and we all absolutely adore each other. Um, so it's really wonderful um, to have been able to grow up in that kind of environment. Although, you know, obviously being kids, um, we didn't always get along. But, um, you know, as you get older and things shift in perspective, um, you realise, 
you know, just how special and important it is to be raised with that kind of closeness and um, uh, just that tenderness that we share. Uh, and then also, you know, the spiritual and cultural aspects of that. Um, you know, being a part of an Aboriginal family is just something that I just, I'm so immensely grateful for um, because it means I think that um, the ties that we all have to each other are just, you know, they are forever, they are eternal, they are um, not simply just, you know, familial, there are all other kinds of things. So, yeah, um, I write about that a lot. Um, I write about my family, I think, probably more than anything else. Um, and that's always been just a really central part of my poetry. Okay, so I was wondering if you'd like to read um, Concessions. Yeah, um, and Concessions is um, thinking about my um, grandparents uh, as well and the complex relations I have with that, so that's another family poem. So, um, yeah, this one is called Concessions. It's been a while since I've walked through a house that rattled with me, peeled a mug of milky bushels from a plastic tablecloth and watched moorhens scratch air outside a shed spilling rusted parts and dusty dogs. It's been a while since I've chopped wood or checked a back fence and longer since I've taken water for the calves or chooks. Some of it is probably still there, the bird baths of crumbling cement the hot, sick smell of mouldy bread, the faded black paint on the dolls' faces and the coiled carpet snake in the shed by the aviary. She loved birds, but I never asked her how. Just soaked up the heat from the wood burner in the kitchen, just splashed in the third-filled tub with a cousin or two, just leant against the fence as the core of silhouettes descended across the dam. There's no stars like the ones that hang the white night above that dam. I'll never be old enough to the veranda or to drive the basher to the back. We watched VHSs on a TV that always needed a minute to warm up, drinking expired soft drink from the fridge out back and fighting for who got to sit in Pa's good chair. Mum's shoulders took two hours to ease on the drive home and Dad was always rotating two or three of us out of the house so it wouldn't shake. In another version of history, we are here, together still. The cattle and the dogs, the birds and the silhouettes, the dam and the damned. In this, I watch old movies and try to catch a glimpse of us in the hot brown blur of the screen. That broad voice, that shimmer of sweat, that work-scarred hand curled around an always too warm beer. History forgets some places and stutters on new ways to name old ghosts. There's more than asbestos rotting in these walls. But I would give most things to read the careful way you spelt our names above the phone or to watch an afternoon sink across the dam, to sit on the veranda and hear you tell me about the birds. It's a wonderful poem. Um, and uh, where were you in that rattly old house? Where was that rattly old house? So that's up in Darkingham country around Waiye on the central coast. And, um, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents uh, when I was growing up there. And it's a pretty typical kind of, you know, Australian 
homestead kind of ideal um, that I found myself increasingly glorifying and romanticizing the more that I got older um, and uh, the more that I kind of learnt about the world and I learnt about poverty and I learnt about despair. Um, and so it's a strange place for me, really. Um, it's one that's full of a lot of complexities. Uh, there's lots of pain and difficulty there. Um, but, you know, when you spend so much time and you learn so much about yourself as a young person in any kind of space, uh, there's always going to be a part of you that's going to want to go back to it, I think, no matter um, what difficulties might be there. Yes, and um, I think, you know, in modern Melbourne we forget um, how rustic uh, some some of the regional areas can be, you know, things like the old TV and uh, the the fridge and, and things like that, that everybody doesn't have all the latest of everything, but uh, no. there's a lot of love there. Yeah, and ultimately I think the whole collection is really geared at trying to create a space for complex kinds of love and for potentially problematic kinds of love, the kinds of things that we desire and romanticise and um, increasingly have these nostalgic relationships with regardless of um, the political or cultural complexity. Um, You know, so the same way I feel about Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie and all of these icons of an Australia that that seeks to erase Aboriginality. Um, it's the same kind of love that I also feel for places that have not always necessarily been the safest or happiest places in the world. Um, you know, you have complex relationships um, and this book is as much, I think, about embracing that nuance and that complexity as it is about critiquing it. Yes, and may- maybe you have the ability to slip between different worlds as well, which may give t- different kinds of perspectives. I think everyone sort of has to adapt to um, a kind of, um, you know, a, a flexibility and fluidity between the different um the different places that they're kind of located in politically and culturally, um, as long as, you know, you're always abiding by principles and, um, you know, I hope for myself um, an emphasis on social justice. It's, um, I think it's too much to expect anyone to completely discard the things that um, were so instrumental in their upbringing um, you know, we don't live politically pure lives. And so I think there's this old adage that you know, can really only critique something that you've loved. And I, I disagree with it. I mean, I politically, I disagree with it. But I think this whole book is a demonstration that sometimes the strongest kind of critique is to begin with that space of acknowledging the love um, that is there, the complex, painful, um, and at times incredibly contradictory and problematic love. Because if you don't acknowledge it in the ways in which you recall and negotiate space and memory, you're never going to actually speak honestly about it. Great. Okay. Well, we might just go to a break. 
You're listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins, and you just heard a track from the CD The Bluebird, The Mystic and The Fool by Joseph Tawadros. Um, today I'm speaking to Evelyn Araluen about her new book, Drop Bear. And um, so, Evelyn, now you're also a researcher, and uh, you're doing a PhD at the moment. Yeah, I'm in the sort of very, very, very final stages of a PhD looking at contemporary Aboriginal women's literature and the way in which that literature is read and understood in Australia and internationally. I was a big fan of Benevolence. I thought that was a wonderful book. Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, uh was a really interesting read for um, for this, this year as well and... Um, I did get a chance to talk to um, Julie and and also that was in dialogue with Tony Birch um, a couple of months ago. So it's a lot of really cool stuff coming out at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now there's a, a really interesting poem in this book called The Trope Speaks. I'm wondering if you'd like to read that. Yeah, absolutely. The Trope Speaks. The trope neatly folds conflictual narratives of national subjectivities and external politics into aesthetic production. The trope styles itself as the working-class battler as it navigates economic, geographic and cultural displacements. The trope stages forbidding tales of estrangement and annihilation against the backdrop of a land fundamentally opposed to humanity and civilization. The trope feels a ghostly spectre haunting the land that smothers it with fence and field and church. The trope offers an aesthetic hybridisation of Eurocentric and Aboriginal culture wherein all that is fundamentally alienating to the white settler gaze is translated into jargon and misappropriated crypto-mythology. The trope cultivates themes of exploration, discovery, settlement and struggle which emphasise settler heroism and resourcefulness to assert a right to dwelling against the unheimlich of the land. The trope plants graves in the pastoral scene and sees a flicker of white skin passing through the trees. The trope sucks at the long neck and tells you that you'll be joining the hunt tonight. The trope wants Australia like a man wants a woman. He fairly trembles with wanting. The trope once had long hair and spoke of liberation, but now votes for local conservatives and owns a boat. The trope, according to legend, can be found in lakes, swamps, pools and billabongs, and is said to make a loud booming noise when it leaves the water at night in search of little boys and girls to swallow. The trope is available for purchase in a wide range of hand-dyed linens. The trope sleeps in a homestead built over bones. The trope contracts. Its planks creak, but its grandfather built it to last and it knows its roofs and verandas will give just enough to survive unscathed. The trope thinks every tree is a ghost gun. The trope has run and run for miles to get a bottle of eucalyptus oil from Dr. Owl. The trope sits on a solitary branch, white and stark against the sky, and has a gun. The trope says, hadn't we better turn back now? It's getting dark. The trope imagines myths, imagining myths, imagining myths, imagining myths. The trope caresses you tender in the public bar, traces its sweaty hands over your brown skin and drags its fat tongue across your neck. The trope doesn't love you. The trope doesn't even know your name. The trope will meet you on the road. Kill him. Amazing. Amazing. 
Um, so I think there's more than one trope here. Is that yes. right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, these are a lot of things that I've just kind of been compiling across different texts and things that I've encountered over the years. Um, so some of them are like quite legitimate things, tropes and conventions that have been observed by different scholars. And some of them are things that I've just noticed are becoming um, increasing patterns myself. I think there's there's so many beautiful images in this particular poem, like the trope sleeps in a homestead built over bones. I mean, that's extraordinary. Well, this is one of the things that you see a lot of, this, um, this idea of um, Aboriginal presence really only kind of being ghostly or, um, you know, it's it's the bones that are under the homestead and there's a few novels that have used that convention or it's the ghosts that, you know, you might see far off in the distance through the trees. Um, and it's a, it's a convention that I think has created a really um, gothic idea about Australian literature but that kind of does always end up in the same, endlessly kind of in the same place of um, Aboriginal people not being there in a living, embodied way, but just being this kind of haunting background presence without the capacity to speak or take agency. Yeah. Um, And beautifully expressed in the trope, doesn't love you. The trope doesn't even know your name. Yeah. Well, it's not, I think... I think it's all really about, I really think it's really about this, that Aboriginal people aren't identified individually in these kinds of conventions. We sort of just blur into this strange idea of um, a kind of collective identity. So your individuality, your name, you know, you're not a part of that. It's just this idea disembodied idea of what an Aboriginal person is that has been used to shape Australian literature for so long. Yes. There's so there's such a long way to go to get to any kind of reconciliation, isn't there? Yeah, and I think that literature has a responsibility in that. Like, I really think that, um, you know, there's so many representations that need to be... Um, corrected and adapted as much as um, as much as we as we can and there's a lot of creative as well as political work and material work to be done in that okay now I'd like to take us across to um, something about uh, something very contemporary in terms of our current situation which is the inevitable pandemic poem and um, we've all sort of just gotten through the year of of COVID lockdown and everything. So um, I'm wondering if you'd like to read this one. Yeah, absolutely. The Inevitable Pandemic Poem. It's April and the city is walking gentle dogs and sanguine children. The light yellow and soft translucently through gum. The Dan Murphy's car park full and every veranda dangling drunk acquaintance. It's April and everyone is home, but the city left its light on. 
the horizons blinking at us from the bottom of the hill where we stroll lanes and back streets with the other gentrifiers. Everyone competes for the best rescue story as our dog licks shit stuck to stray browning leaves. April is a spilt month, leaking from the edges of pre-faded posters reading we're all in this together. Emails from universities that can't pronounce my name, asking if I've ever heard of ab study or the doll. It's the warm, sour smell of the starter I couldn't get to rise. The job of whoever had to take down the swings from the playground that is best done under cover of night. The faint hum of the laptop that's been running since summer and the corner of the home I can't go back to, where the reception is clear enough for my parents to hear me when I call. It's April and Apple had the heartwarming footage ready for the Master Cup. Apple has a cave under the sea where they store the apocalypse to roll it out between flashes of cooking tutorials for meals I'll never make. It's April and the government is selling Anzac Day on YouTube like a promise they can't remember breaking. I am wearing April like luxury loungewear, strolling from bed to bedside in a tangle of phone charges, a crown of empty mugs, the endless of an abandoned promise, the always of emails answered in another's sleep, the readiness to never surface from the dark. It's April and it's my job to pack palms for the flame-proof bunker, to write the one that will sit on top like the ancestral prologue for the nation that carried on and did what it wanted anyway. Mine is a letter to my animal-crossing wife, to the crow-scratching air on the highway side, to the family that I promised against history I would never be made to part from. We all write our poems on masks, and now there are none left for the city. I am walking April with my dog, and she is so happy. Ah, well, a little bit of joy in all that pandemic time. Yeah, it was a good year for dogs. Yes, 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 it was. Anyway, we've got a, we've only got a few minutes left, um, so I'm just wondering if you could read Bad Taxidermy. Yeah, absolutely. Bad Taxidermy. The brush tail dyed Tesco ice chocolate brown and face-stuffed forehead high like a squirrel. The tour that I left five minutes into the guide recounting all the middle names of its benefactors. Every street name the same here as it is at home. The quail tail pulled out taut and haunches raised to best recall the common red fox perched in prey at the squirrel. Kylie Minogue in hot pants and a hot pink koala knit sitting side saddle on a scribbly with a lush blue gum arrangement. Whoever names the Tasmanian devil and the faintly otter-like lift of his small dark paws on the acrylic shelf. The Instagram ad for Australian native birth flower charms and corresponding zodiac chart of symbolic meanings they are said to manifest. The Welsh newsreader stumbling over the names of towns turned kindling. Every photo of our shoes I've taken accidentally and then found on my camera roll but not deleted. The 17-pound sacks of organic goon at Marks and Spencer. The way the storm's mist looks almost like the smoke I can still taste from here. The fear that my lungs have collected enough to exhale and stain the air. The swamp wallabies and the jardin de plants with fur darker than they've ever needed back home. 
angling my reflection out of photos of cabinets with drawings of my ancestors rubbing sticks. The lungfish nailed to a birch board and the sea shanty I wait for him to sing. The thin white eucalypt splitting the path at Dublin Zoo. The man laughing in the anthropology museum and the sleeve I wiped my nose with after telling him to fuck off. The eBay bidding war over Kylie's hot pink koala knit. The Facebook ad for canine air pollution masks and all the people tagging each other in the comments. The row of crocodile skulls arranged like a butcher's window. The koala in the museum bleached white from flash photography and the plastic citrus leaves he sucks. The cabinet of Pacifica statues posed in worship around a bowl of coins marked anthropologist fundraising ritual. The unfair green of organised countryside. The spare cabinets waiting in anticipation in the extinction room. Photos of our feet walking through the colony's churches while all ours burn. The tangled echo of children and gulls laughing in the university's stone square that rattles like a magpie sung through a lyrebird. An amazing uh, collection of images. Yeah, I was in um, the UK just through uh, um, a few weeks in January while we were going through the worst of the bushfires and it was like collecting all these horrible kinds of tokens of of strangeness instead of um, instead of souvenirs really yes yes um, yeah the word other comes leaping out doesn't it yeah oh it's a weird way of seeing yourself mm. so external and far from your home mm. okay well we've got to finish here but um, uh, thank you for coming on to the program Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I've been talking to Evelyn Araluen today about her new book, Drop Bear. And um, this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Program. And we'll just go out with a little bit more music from The Bluebird, The Mystic and The Fool by Joseph Tawadros. (laughs) 